The youth last week, Jeff did an awesome job. Uh, several of you have told me that, and also uh, what I was able to watch. Uh, last week, last week this time, I was in Israel, and I was going, you know, some people, well, are you going to tell about your Israel trip? I'm, not yet, because I'm not prepared to, really. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Tommy and, and Jesse telling me about their wonderful trip. And I said, uh, man, that's on my bucket list. One day I'd love to go to Jerusalem. Well, it wasn't too many, you know, a week or so later, I get this text. Do you have a current uh, passport? And I go, yeah, me and Sharon both do. They said, do you want to go to Israel? And I go, yeah, I mean, why? Yeah, I do. And uh, so the situation, there was uh, a pastor. He's all involved in the Washington Connection and praying for our country. Ben and his wife Candace, and then a guy in South Carolina, Matt, and his wife Lynn, and then Dr. Ham and his wife Diane. They were going, and there was Ben's brother was supposed to go, and he something come up and he couldn't go, and so they asked, "Can you go?" I mean, it's right. I mean, it's right now. And Sharon had to check at work, but literally in a, in about a day, we went from not even a clue, a thought, or even anything about going to Israel or Jerusalem. And we got to go absolutely free, the flight, the food, the everything. And I just felt like it, this is something I always want to do. And sometimes you just feel like God gives you the desires of your heart. And so I get there to Jerusalem. And all I did, to be honest, for seven days is cry, I think. I just cried every day. It's so overwhelming. And to realize that how did I get to go? How did this work out? And so I will tell you something about that trip eventually but uh, I've got to get my composure, if you might say. I'll tell you a few things. I'm going to be preaching uh, from a few things from over there in, in the near future. But today, we're in Romans, the 10th chapter. It would be an understatement to say that the book of Romans is a complicated book. Uh, I preached through the book several times, two or three times. And two of them have been at this church. And I could start over when I end, and we would still be learning stuff. You will just never dig out all the treasures there is in the book of Romans. And so today I'm on chapter 10. And uh, uh, because I'm not as sophisticated, <laughs> uh, and I, I've said, well, how can I get this book on my level? And I'd found out the youth have already watched some of this, but it's a company called the Bible Project. They take and kind of graft out, and they're, these are not just... Uh, cartoonist or animated people they are people that take and try to explain the Bible where we could understand it in a very understandable way I'd like for them to play this video to kind of bring us up to where we are today and I'm going to pick it up from there with the sermon Paul's letter to the Romans check out the first video where we explored who Paul was and why he wrote this letter and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. 
Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith, that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, they're right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the wholehearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, what then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? Paul says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart and that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all of the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there's more. 
God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation, making it a place where his love gets the final word. Now, you can see how chapters 1 through 8 are one long flow of thought here, but it raises some other questions. If all of this was God's purpose, what is the current status then of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? How does this story fulfill God's promises to them? Well, Paul begins in chapter 9 with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't think Jesus is their Messiah. And it leads him to reflect on Israel in the past from the Old Testament story. And he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. Paul shows us how God has always selected a subset from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise. And his point is that now that line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. He reminds us that for a long time, people inside and outside Abraham's family have rejected God's will. He reminds us of the story of Israel and the golden calf and of Pharaoh's rebellion. He shows us how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of him actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. And so in chapter 10, Paul turns his focus to Israel in the present. The reason many Israelites reject Jesus is because they're basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands in the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family on the basis of faith. And so Paul asks in chapter 11. All right. Did you get the cartoon? <laughs> it's pretty good. And actually, they've got these established pretty much for the entire Bible. It'd be a great way for you and your family to learn more about the Bible. <clears throat> Today we're in chapter 10. One of the things I noticed in, you know, we decided who was going to preach these different sections way before I even thought about going to Israel. And, but one of the things over there, when we went to the wedding wall, uh, <clears throat> uh, you see these, these the Hasidic Jews, they're wearing their hats and they've got the long curly where they've not cut in their hair and they've got it curled up because it'd be so long and the big beards and all black and they've got their prayer shawls on and they're standing at the wall and they're they're basically reading the bible day and night if you go to the side area over there they've actually got these gold uh scrolls and you can take and they spin from the bottom very easily and they've got these pointers where they don't actually touch it but they can go through there and read actual the Septuagint, the first five books of the Bible. And I was thinking about as I was there and, and seeing the dedication of the Jewish people there and seeing like, man, my dedication is not even in the same ballpark. I mean, I don't even know if I'm saved compared to them, you know, with all that they're doing and they're there all day long. And, and then we went and saw it that day and that night they were back for the Shabbat and they were out there dancing and, and you know, worshiping you know, their understanding of God. And uh, at first, that's the way I felt like, man, I mean, oh, I mean, I'm playing church compared to them. And then there was a sadness that came over me. And kind of the sadness was that they do all of this and they've been doing all this for all these years. And yet... <clears throat> The question that has to be asked is why? Why are they doing all of that? Why are they, do they think all of that's going to save them? And so my the sermon title today is Jesus Enough. Is Jesus enough or do we need all that other stuff? Do we need the religion? 
And so I saw, uh, it was so overwhelmed to be in, you know, Bethlehem. It was so, to be on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, to be where, you know, Abraham offered his son on the altar. And you, you go to all these places and you go, they actually stood here. This happened here. And uh, uh, we went out on the Sea of Galilee and there was something spiritual happened there when, when the boat let go from the shore and it began to move out. I had sunglasses on and we all did. And I was just standing there and just all at once the Spirit of God just came and I was crying and I, I was kind of embarrassed and I looked around and everybody, the, all eight of us, was just crying. And we didn't even know why we were crying, but we were crying and, and we were on the water where Jesus walked on the water. We were there where the disciples discussed biblical stuff and, and it was so overwhelming. And, uh, and uh, I can't hardly even go there without weeping to this day. And I don't even know why. I'm just telling you, it, 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 it hugely affected me. And some of you are going, are we ever going to take a trip here? We are going to take a trip from our church, and you may want to get on board because it totally had an effect on my life. But it had an effect in a different way than I had thought. And so I'm, I'm wondering, with, with standing on the ground and, and seeing all the stories and, and seeing... Why is it that the Jews could not see Jesus? Why, why was it they didn't understand Jesus? Why, why was it they did not get it? And, and so it was that paradox of like, okay, they've got everything in the world to see Jesus, and yet they don't see Jesus. And so I want to go now to Romans, the 10th the, uh, chapter, and see if I can kind of get us there. Paul was a Jew. On the, the Friday, the, the, they were getting ready in the Shabbat. The little kids came through. And, you know, they're coming from the rabbi schools and stuff. And they've got these little kids. And they've taken, I guess, erase, I hope it's erasable marker. But they had these little black glasses drawn on their faces. And they've got the little, you know, the hair coming down. And they've got the kids dressed like it would be their, their father and their grandfather. And they're headed and they're, you know, they got their little outfits on. And you see them in the holy city and they're so dressed up and it's so cute that these parents are raising their kids and their kids' kids in that environment. I'm thinking, we're missing the mark. And these kids will go there and they'll pray. And, you know, they'll go and they've got these little cups and they'll wash and they'll prepare and they'll go up and do all this stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, they're so, so, so dedicated. And yet... With all that they do and all the symbolism and all the religion and all the things they have to see Jesus, they don't see Jesus. It's sad. And literally, when you think about the Bible, we're talking about different series to come up with in the, in the future for this church. And one of them, you know, it's all about Jesus. Every book of this Bible, of the law, the Septuagint, every book of this Bible is about Jesus. And and. In Genesis, he's the seed of woman that is promised to come. In Leviticus, he's our great high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you go on through. Jesus is literally in every book of the Bible. He's in every story in the Bible. He's in every parable of the Bible. There is nothing in this Bible that's not about Jesus. So here's people. I would hate to get in a debate with a, a, you know, a Jew 
especially in the Hasidic Jew, they've got the, the, they've got the Bible memorized. They could, they, could, they could just start in Hebrew and start telling you the stories of the Bible by memory. And yet they don't know about Jesus. So I come back and here, here's this topic here and I'm thinking about how Paul, Paul would have been one of those kids that they dressed up. Paul would have been one of those circumcised from the eighth day. Paul would have been one of those that was raised up in those families. And then Paul starts out Roman 10. And you can hear the sadness in his voice. Brothers and sisters, my heart desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He wanted his family, his people to be saved. The little cartoon type thing, the little animation thing. Did you notice that God has chosen a people, but there is a people within a people. And if you notice that it was not Ishmael, the firstborn. It was Isaac. It would not have been the, the firstborn of, of Sarah, it had been the, of Hagar, but it was Abraham's firstborn. Ishmael was rejected, but Isaac. Then you notice it was Esau that was firstborn that was rejected, but Jacob, which is where you get the name Israel. And, and people have said for years, what that is representing is not our first, first birth. You know, I was born a Daniels, proud to be a Daniels, but Daniels won't get you to heaven. It's not your first birth. You must be born again. So when we get born again, and we have to be born again to Jesus, we have to get in his family. And the big question is, how do you get in Jesus's family? If, if the old Adam family don't work, how do you get in the new Adam family that does work? How do you do that? And this is what this is talking about here. Verse two, for I can testify about them. How could Paul testify about them? Because he was one of them. That they are zealous for God. You, you, you think Paul wasn't zealous for God when he was out killing Christians in the name of Jesus? In the na- well, not Jesus, but in the name of God? He was turned on for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believe. Jesus is the culmination of Jesus is the culmination of the law. The entire law is about Jesus. It's all about him. You know that song it's all about that bass. No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What's wrong with the way that Israel pursued righteousness what's wrong with the way that they looked at this they pursued it and and Jeff most likely covered this last week Uh, sometimes we about run out of time but in the ninth chapter the 32nd verse there we'll back up a little bit maybe to the but in this uh, passage let's go to verse 30 of chapter 9 what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not they did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. They wasn't even trying. They wasn't even working for it. And they got it. They obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But the people, the people of Israel, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not obtained their gold. Why not? And he gives us the why not. Because they pursued it not by faith, 
but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And who is the stumbling stone? According to the Bible, the stumbling stone is Jesus. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus. So here was the thing about the Jews. They were zealous. You ever knew anybody zealous? What does zealous mean? It means you're hot, you're fervent. You're... A lot of Christians, when they first get saved, they're zealous. They're excited, but they don't have a whole lot of sense. I know a guy got saved. He goes, well, I read in the Bible where Jesus went out and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to fast 40 days and 40 nights. And the guy kind of went off the deep end. Because he wasn't prepared for it and he didn't even know what he was doing. He just went out in the woods and about went crazy. Uh, when I was, in, when I was a, a teenager, I took uh, uh, a class on life-saving, you know, because there's lakes everywhere in Florida and I was a lifeguard. And they would teach you, they said, you know, when you first become a lifeguard, you learn the lessons and then you go like, well, I'm going to go out and save somebody if I ever need to be. And so you're, you're sitting there on, waiting for somebody to be in distress where you could run out and save them. Hopefully it was a girl, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so one of they said, though, you're, you're fervent, you're excited about these new skills, but be careful because if you don't, if you don't stay in the knowledge of what you've learned, you, you could die. And they said, at some point in, or in time, you're going to see somebody out there in distress and you're going to go, oh, I need to get out there to them. I need to swim out there to them and help them. But they said, that's when you need to think first or they could kill you because you're a teenager and you're just going to swim out to somebody that's probably twice your size. It could be a strong man or a strong woman that outweighs you and you get out there and all they're trying to do is breathe some more air and keep from dying. And so they will climb on top of you. They will destroy you. They will kill you trying to save their own life. And so don't just go out there and go after them without thinking. And so you observe them as you swim and out. You observe they're bigger than I am. They're taller than I am. They're heavier than I am. They're stronger than I am. And so it's kind of cruel what you end up doing. You kind of just swim out and you tread water and you let them keep fighting. You let them keep fighting. And eventually they give up and they're basically, you know, at the early stage of drowning and they just about to go underwater. Then when they're totally surrendered, you could swim out to them and they told us to just grab them by the hair of their head. And you hold them and you swim sideways back in to the shore. You flip them over, you get the water out of them and you save them. But, you know, it's, it's better that both of you be saved than you go out there and you're going to be some guy and you get drowned. And so, you know, you could be zealous. Some people get zealous for God, but their zealousness does not go anywhere. It only brings death. Well, the, the Jews were zealous for God, but their zealousness did not bring life. It still brought death. It did not bring any of the results that they wanted. And so uh, they, they got hung up on Jesus, the stumbling block. And, and they, you know... So Paul is trying to describe what happened to the Jews. One of the things of the Jews, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, they were not ignorant of the fact that God was holy and that God was righteous. They were ignorant to the fact of that God wanted to bestow this holiness and this righteousness onto us. It's like somebody explained to me one time, it's like this book right here, if this represented God, this iPad represented God. And, and so... 
You know, Jesus on the first day he worked and he created the heavens and earth. And I believe that he was our creator. He created in the second day and the third day and the fourth day. And, the, and then we get to the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, what did it say he did? He rested. Well, what makes the Sabbath day holy? Somebody explain to me, if, if you took this book and this table right here was considered unholy and this was God coming down upon it and God rested upon that table, it would become a holy table automatically because God is on it. God is overshadowing. God is upon that table. And so it's kind of the idea that anywhere that God rests is holy. And so God, he bestows righteousness on us. He bestows holiness on us. It was a thought that the Jews never could get. They didn't understand. They thought they had to earn their own righteousness. They, had, they thought they had to work for their own righteousness. So we find that they were ignorant and had no discernment to recognize and to know and to understand where righteousness were to, was to come from. They were ignorant, not of that God was righteous, but that God was going to take his righteousness and give it to us. So then, because they didn't understand the first part of the story, they got the second part wrong. Because they go, well, you know, God, he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And, you know, if he's holy, we got to be holy. Then, you know, when you get the first part of the thing wrong, you get the second part wrong. So the second part, they, they established their own righteousness. They establish their own righteousness. Don't you think there's a lot of churches in America that are establishing their own righteousness? There's a lot of churches that are more rigorous than we are. They go to church more times a week. They have holy days. They have all these things you've got to do, all these rituals you've got to cover. Because, you know, they're, you know, they're holy. They've got to do a lot of stuff. But are they trying to obtain their own righteousness? They seek to establish their own righteousness? And because then they got number two wrong, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. They, number three, they did not submit to God in order to receive God's righteousness. When you, when you look at the, the description of what Paul is saying, the, descript, the descriptions of Israel, and, and what is their underlying problem? Their underlying problem is pride. Pride is their problem. What's the center letter in the word sin? I What's the center letter in the word pride? I. What was Paul's problem in Romans 7? I, 32 times. I, 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 I. I tried to do this and I didn't do it very good. And I tried to do that and I didn't. And what I wanted to do, I didn't do. I. There was Saul before he was changed by the power of God. And he was seeking to serve God with his own righteousness. And he realized he's an ultra is a failure at it. In the last verse, he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We live in bodies in death, and our first birth will never get us to heaven. We've got to be born again. We've got to get out of the Adam's family, get in the Jesus family. And so, what does it mean to submit to God and his righteousness? God's righteousness is obtained when a person believes in Christ and his faith. And it's reckoned as righteousness. There's a good southern term. God said, well, if you're going to believe on me, I reckon you're safe. <laughs> no, it's actually an accounting term. If you'll do this, I'll do this. If you'll believe on me. What do you say in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth 
in me shall not perish but have eternal life. All right, so the Jews, instead of seeking their own righteousness, all they had to do is believe on Jesus for Jesus to be their righteousness and bestow righteousness and holiness upon them. That's all they had to do. And, and, and so uh, the, and it, would be, it would have been accounted, Jesus' righteousness would have been accounted for their righteousness. It's like, uh, I am going to talk quite a bit about the Jerusalem thing. When, when Abraham offered his son Isaac, and then there was a ram in the bush, and Isaac kind of becomes the first living sacrifice. He was to be sacrificed, but he got off the altar, and he's a living sacrifice. Well, that was a, that, like every story in the Bible is telling you about Jesus. So eventually they would be Jesus. He would go on the cross and his father would give him and he would die on the cross. And three days later, he'd be resurrected. And Jesus is a living sacrifice. And, you know, in, 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 in a sense, you, you see that every single story in the Bible is about Jesus. Every story in the Bible is about Jesus. And, uh, the little joke in children's church was, you know, what's, what's gray? It's got a, you know, a fluffy tail and, and gathers nuts and climbs in trees. Little boy goes, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Because most of the time, if you say Jesus, it's the right answer in the Bible. Because the Bible is all about Jesus. <laughs> so if you never know the answer to a story. You just say Jesus, you'd probably be half right anyway. So... There's a direct contrast to someone attempting to be righteous through their own efforts or works. Works will never get us to heaven. I used to be in a church that had a whole lot more works to it. Some days I feel like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm doing enough. Am I doing enough? Are other churches doing more? Some people leave churches like these and they go to church. Well, they do more. They go to church more. They, they do this and do that and do that and do that. And what they're doing, they're leading you back to, into a works religion. Do you ever struggle to submit to God? What causes the struggle? What is your primary source of acquiring knowledge? When you read verses 4 through 8, he goes a little bit further in this. And uh, I, I'll just read the, the uh, 10 and 4 through 8. And I want you to, I want you to see this. Uh, he said, Christ is the culmination of the law. He fulfills the law. He fulfills all the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What's the key to getting God's righteousness? Believe. Just believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so we find this uh, is the key. And he says, Israel thought they were right with God. They thought they were right with God through their works, through keeping the external letter of the law. Why was that wrong? Why was it wrong to think if you keep the law that you could be saved? Christ is the end. He's the culmination. He's the end. He's the completion. He's the gold of the law. For the righteousness to everyone who believes. The law pointed to man's need for a savior. The law itself is not the savior. It's the tutor that shows us the need of a savior. I compared it in the first service to like a, a treasure. You ever went scavenger hunting and you're looking for a treasure and you read it and go, okay, okay, so we go here and you go there, okay, and then you read that and it tells you to go here. And then you go over here and you read that and it goes here. And then you read that and you go here. And you're on this and you're looking for the treasure. Well, what if you got caught up? What if you got caught up in learning the treasure map? 
What if you go, you know, this treasure map, this scavenger, this treasure map is so exciting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and look up all the original uh, words of this treasure map. I'm going to go back and see how that word was used in the original language. I'm going to memorize this treasure map. And what about if one day somebody come up and you could quote the entire treasure map. And somebody said, well, have you found the treasure yet? No, I haven't found the treasure, but I've got the map memorized. But folks, if you memorize the whole Bible and all the Septuagint, I've got a prayer shawl I'm going to wear one day. And, you know, it's got the Ten Commandments and they've got these little tassels on the back and those tassels. They even wrote 613 precepts to the law. And so if you were to go online and look up the 613 precepts of the law, it's ridiculous. Some of the other stuff they were trying to keep on top of the law. And it's ridiculous, but they, they wear these prayer shawls to this day. They'll come in and put it on and they do this prayer thing and all. And they hold it and they're going through the different you know, the commandments, and they're, they're, they're such keepers of the law. They've got all this stuff memorized. They start memorizing each one of the little ties as a little kid. And as they get old, they've got all this stuff memorized. And they got the treasure map memorized, but they can't find the treasure. Can't find the treasure. The treasure is Jesus. A lot of churches today are caught up in learning the treasure map, and they've never found Jesus. They struggled. And, and we find that Christ is the end. You know, Jesus is it, folks. Jesus is the treasure. The law just points you to the treasure. He's the Savior. Verses 5 and 6 is what, what is this contrast is these verses. Righteousness based on the law versus righteousness based on faith. I want to give this to you here so I can get this thing to work. All right, here's, here's how the, the Jews did it, and here's how Jesus wanted us to do it. Right here, the law's righteousness is only for the Jew. How's that for predestination and, and election? What the Jews believe is only for them. Like, boy, what are you doing in this room here? Can't you see how we're dressed out, and we've got our stuff on, and, and we're doing the wall thing, and you're some American, you don't even know what we're doing? They believe that the righteousness is just for the Jew. It's just you got to be born a certain way. You got to be circumcised the eighth day. You got to be, and it's only for the Jews. We're out of the picture, folks. We're, we're not there. But then Jesus comes along. He talks about a faith righteousness. What's a good definition for faith? I like the, the definition or the acrostic on faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. The only way to get to heaven is trust in him, Jesus Christ. And so this, this Jesus faith forsaking all I trust in Jesus righteousness is for whosoever will. Whosoever. Whosoever. Anybody can have this. You can have it. I can have it. No matter what your last name is, it's not your first last name that's important. It's your second one. It's not your birth name. It's your rebirth name. You're in the family of God. It's, it's the righteousness that comes through God. Whosoever will, whosoever will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. You know, I, I dread that we're already again back around to people running for election. I hadn't even got over the last election, have you? And now they're starting it again. So many, and you know, they, they go around and they, they tell these like, 
I'll do this for you. I'll do this. I'll buy that for you. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And what they're doing, they go and they get in these little towns and they tell you this stuff. And then you hear, but you go, well, I don't believe them. They don't have a track record. I don't know that I can put any weight in what they're saying. So it's not people that just hear the law or hear the gospel, because a lot of people heard the gospel. One of the greatest gospel tellers that ever was was probably Billy Graham, and a lot of stadiums emptied out with only a certain amount of people receiving Jesus Christ. Because they received the word, but it was not mixed with faith, and so they went out going, well, that's not kind of what our church says, and plus we got to do this and this and this and this, and he ain't talking about that, so he must not be right. And so they've heard, but they do not believe, and they did not put their faith in the Lord. It's kind of what happens when, you know, God wants everybody to be saved, but then you get out here and you hear the story, you go, I don't know if I believe that or not. So you, you've heard the gospel, but you've not ever decided. But you know, when somebody's trying to be elected for office, they tell you all these stories and what they can do and what they're hoping to do. And if you believe them, what do you do? You elect them. You elect them. And you start putting your confidence and your faith in them. God says, whosoever will can be saved. You hear his word. He said, faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. The way you get to believe that Jesus is your righteousness is you believe and you read the word of God and you go, that may not be the way I was taught. That may not be the way I was raised, but this is what the Bible says. And let every man be a liar and let the word be so. I am saved because Jesus died on the cross and he bestows righteousness upon me. Therefore, I'm saved. And so you, you look at it that way and you go, okay, then you elect, you choose Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. That's how we get saved, folks. We hear the story. We believe it. We apply it by faith. We elect, we say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life, and you're saved. Period. He's the culmination. He's the total. He's the finishing. He's the, it's done. It's a done deal. The difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world, all the other religions of the world, is you've got to do stuff. And Christianity is about what's already been done. It's already been done. Jesus already went to the cross. Another way we know the law did not work. They give the law. Well, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that. Well, they knew they shouldn't do it. It was plain as day. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, you know, all these things. And yet they did it anyway. So after they did it, what happened? They felt guilty, right? They had condemnation. They didn't want to be near God because they disobeyed God. So they, they've got this guilt and they've got this condemnation. So now God's got a people that he loves that he has already said that he's going to take the seed of a woman and bruise Satan's, uh, he's going to take his heel and bruise Satan's head. One day there's a redeemer coming. He's going to buy us back. He's going to redeem us. But these people are afraid, ashamed, condemned, guilty, won't even come to God. They don't even want to be like, oh, God's coming in the garden. We need to go hide under a bush. There's a lot of people hiding under bushes today. They're hiding from God. They're hiding from churches. You ever heard anybody go, well, you know, why don't you come to church? Well, when I get to doing better, I think I'll come to church. That's like going, you know, when I get better, I think I'm going to go to the doctor. You're really, really sick. You're about to die and go, yeah, when I get better, I'm going to go to the hospital. That's insane. That's ignorant. That's crazy. 
is crazy. Why would anybody go, when I get better, I'm going to go to church? If you can get better without going to church, you don't need to go to church. Go golfing. Go do something else. And, and so we hide from God because we, we, we don't measure up to some kind of righteousness that's not even righteousness to start with. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is our only hope. He is the only way to heaven. And, and so when, when man felt guilty, what did, he, what did he do? Jesus had to do a way to deal with their guilt. So what did he do? He said, okay, I'm going to take this lamb, and I'm going to kill this lamb, and I'm going to shed his blood. And this lamb, when I do this, you won't be guilty no more. So you don't have to hide under a bush in the garden. So the Levitical priesthood had to be established because the law didn't work. If the law would have worked, they wouldn't have needed the blood of a lamb. But it was a signpost to lead them to Christ anyway, because guess who the lamb represents? Jesus. What's the, well, you can't hardly go wrong. What does the lamb represent? Jesus. Not a squirrel, it's Jesus. The lamb represents Jesus. The blood represents the blood of Jesus. They used to stretch that lamb out on a, a little, looks like a cross, and they would roast it, and they'd eat it in the Passover. They put the blood, on, the blood on the doorpost represented Jesus. The door represented Jesus. Everything represented Jesus because Jesus is the only thing that leads to righteousness. There is no righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is trying to get this across, and he, he tells us it's a righteousness based on it, the contrast is between the Jews believed in a righteousness based on the law, where Jesus believed in a righteousness based on faith, faith in him. What do you, what do you think this the, turned, the, turned them off? Because it didn't appeal to them earning favor. They liked the idea that they could earn favor with God. I, I, I often wondered why that this experience in Israel was so emotional for me well I think it was so emotional because I was just chosen out of who knows how where when do you want to go to Israel yeah I want to go to Israel I was on a plane I didn't deserve to be on a plane I didn't pay no ticket I got on another plane didn't pay no ticket got out and got in a Mercedes van I didn't pay nothing Ate food I didn't pay for. Walked on streets I'd never paid to be there. I felt so, so, uh, why? Why me? I got to thinking about that. One day we're going to get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to be in heaven and we're going to, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we're going to go, I don't have one lousy or good reason why I'm here. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I haven't lived one day of my life perfectly according to the law. Not one. But yet people lay out of church and go, well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't belong over there with them church people. You need to get a clue. Us church people as big sinners you are. We're just saved by the grace of God. I mean, you, you, may, you, may have, you, know, you may have hit some of the top ten, but we hit some of the other ones that week. 
And we come, and the reason we can come here and worship is because none of us is worthy to worship God. None of us are worthy to be saved. Probably the first 10,000 years in heaven, it's just going to be a bunch of us crying, and there's supposed to be no tears in heaven, so I don't know, maybe just be rejoicing. Oh, my God, I made it. And you made it? Oh, my God, I never thought you'd make it. They go, well, I thought you wouldn't make it. And we're all here. Oh, my God, that's amazing. It is. It's going to be amazing because there's going to be a lot of people you didn't think is going to make it. If they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. I, I like what he gets on into here. He goes, to be righteous under the law would require perfect obedience. No man can do. Only Christ was able to fulfill the law perfectly. It would be a works-based righteousness. A person who could keep every law would earn their righteousness. Wouldn't it be a horrible place you get to heaven and go, yeah, bless God I made it to heaven. You know, you, you know, I went to church every Sunday. I preached. I paid tithes. And you're just up there bragging in heaven, bragging and bragging and bragging, like all the stuff you did to get to heaven. That is not going to be, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not a work, at least any man can boast. There won't be no boasting in heaven. Everybody be there crying their eyes or rejoicing or however we're going to do it. We're just like, all I want to do is praise Jesus for a million years. Because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him dying on the cross for me. I can think of I'd get there and it'd be like getting to Jerusalem. It's like, i got to take all my shoes. I need to see if I can make sure I've got everything. I don't want anything on my feet because I'm fixing to be walking on gold. I'm in heaven. I'm walking on gold. Ooh, I don't want to spoil it or nothing. I'm in heaven. I'm walking on gold. There's no... It's beautiful. Heaven is beautiful. It's beautiful. And I don't deserve to be here. And then I'm thinking, oh yeah, can you point me to where Jesus is? Because I can't wait to find him and get out on my knees and thank him for being the ultimate sacrifice for me to have eternal life. So it goes from a base works to come by faith alone. You can only get to heaven by faith alone. It goes from self-righteousness. It's not our what we do. It's not our self, what we've done. It's God's righteousness bestowed or, or, or given unto us. This cannot save. It can't, you, there's not one person that's ever been born that perfectly kept the law except Jesus. And so no one can be saved. But cannot be saved this brings salvation trusting in jesus for your righteousness brings salvation this right here obey the lord you know, aren't we supposed to obey the lord yeah we are but nobody ever will successfully obey the lord to the total of the law so what do we do under righteousness we call on the lord hey god it's dennis again i messed up and you told me not to go hide under a bush no more and be guilty and condemned you said, come to me, and you would be my righteousness. And God, I'm sorry. You know what a lousy piece of junk I am. I wouldn't be fit for nothing if it wasn't for your grace. And I'm so thankful for your grace. And I love you all the days of my life for your wonderful grace. It's your unmerited favor. See, we think that we can get God indebted to us by trying to do something for him. Folks, it's the other way around. God's already done everything. We're indebted to him for a million years. It's his grace. And so we just call upon the name of the Lord. All Adam and Eve had to do is call on the name of the Lord. This leads to pride. 
Law's righteousness, but this glorifies God. All we're going to want to do forever is just thank God because we have no other reason to be saved other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. So James says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles as just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I want to ask you something. We're going to do a, 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 does anybody believe there's anybody that's ever lived that's not broke one thing of the law? Anybody? I don't believe there is either. Jesus is the only one that came and perfectly lived out the law. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Did you, did you understand that when we sin, we are under a curse? We're under a curse. We're under a curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were under a curse of, of guilt and condemnation, and they wanted to hide under a bush. Why do people uh, over-sedate? Why do they use drugs and alcohol? Why do they go out? They do something wrong, and they go out, and, well, I've done messed up now. You're on a diet. You mess up. You're going to go do some more. You commit adultery. I'm going to go do some more. Uh, you know, they say if you keep doing it enough, you won't even, you won't even bother your conscience anymore. You try. But what you normally do, you go from here to even get worse and worse and worse and worse. You try, you're trying to override your conscience. Carl Manager was a great uh, psychologist and all. And in, back in the 70s, he wrote a book that said 83% of people in mental hospitals could go home tomorrow if they knew they were forgiven. Why is that such a big issue? Because the issue of breaking the law is sin, and sin brings guilt and condemnation. You do somebody wrong, you feel bad about it. You break your, your, your spouse's heart, you feel bad about it. You break your kid's heart, you feel bad about it. And so we can live in that guilt. We can water in that guilt. That's why people won't come. I don't want to go to church because I feel so bad. You shouldn't feel bad. You should come and, and join with us and let's lean on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lean on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're all sinners saved by grace. And you know what he said? He said he's going to take that stony heart we got and he's going to give us a brand new heart. And the brand new heart he's going to give us is going to have his laws written on them. We're going to find ourselves living a little better every day for Jesus because we've got Jesus living in us and he is the fulfillment of that law. We cannot live the law without Jesus. We can't live one day. And the days that we messed up, we just call on the name of the Lord. God, I'm trying. I'm not there yet, but you're helping me. What is the contrast? And he tells us there, he goes through this long thing. You know, you could be down to the pits, you could go to the abyss, or you can go to heaven. Some people go, well, if you could reach up to heaven. And the woman, you know, said, uh, well, what mountain should we worship on? Some said you worship on Abraham, the, this mountain. Some said you worship there. And Jesus said, he said, the day's coming when it's neither there or here. You worship me, you worship Jesus. In other words, the, the truth. He tells them this thing is not far off. This, it's not a way away. It's not far off. Uh, he, he says... Uh, he says, tells us that the righteousness based on the fact that we find Christ, it's not about some abyss, it's not some mountain, it's not some religion. He said the Father sent his Son and raised Jesus from the dead. God did the work for us, work that we could never do. Our role is to believe in the work that God has done in our lives. Paul didn't just make this stuff up. Paul was quoting in the Old Testament all along. About all of these passages that Paul are bringing up are from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 30, 14, it says, No, the word of, is very near you. It is in your mouth. It's even in your heart. So you may obey it. Moses taught Israel that God desires obedience that comes from the heart that loves him. 
It was not an obscure message and it was not unobtainable. And because of that, Israel missed it. And he tells us, he said, well, how do you get this righteousness that only comes by Jesus Christ? Verse 9, he said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, ye shall be saved. You go, Pastor Dennis, that can't be that easy. You're mean to tell me that if we, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe it in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we are saved. I'm telling you, that's exactly what it says. I used to preach a message 12 inches between heaven and hell. It's the difference between just saying it or hearing it and having it in your heart. You got to believe that Jesus is your only way to heaven. That's why there's not multiple ways of heaven. There's not multiple gods that you can get to heaven. There's only one God to get to heaven. It's Jesus. You have to confess him and his righteousness and you go to heaven. You trust in him. Forsaking all, I trust him. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to peace. He's the only way to uh, be guilt-free. Folks, we need to lighten up and start enjoying our Christianity that has been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Lighten up on your friends. Lighten up on your kids. Lighten up on your families. And let's be free in Jesus Christ. I'd like for the youth to come back out. And this beautiful song they sing is that very thing. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the three in one. That's a confession. But if, if you were to take that song they're singing and, and not just hear this message, but apply this message today and go, you know, I believe that. I believe, you, I believe that I'm hearing it by faith and I believe by faith that Jesus is the answer for all my sins and I'm going to believe on him. I'm going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel it in my heart. I'm going to confess it with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's raised from the dead. Paul, Paul's big thing was, Paul's big thing in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, if Christ has not risen from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins under the wrath of God. We're not coming under the wrath of God. We're already under the wrath of God. We're not coming into the curse. We're already in the curse. Jesus is the curse remover and the wrath remover. But after he was crucified, Christ entered into the holies of holies. What is Jesus doing up in the holies of holies? With his own blood. You remember the lamb in the beginning? This is the lamb at the end. He's in the holies of holies with his own blood. And God accepted it as his atoning sacrifice. For who? For our sin. Hebrews 9:11. God's wrath was satisfied. Jesus' resurrection proved that he conquered death, the penalty for sin through faith in his work. Believers are no longer dead in sin. They are alive in Christ Jesus. That's a hallelujah, all right. I'm going to give you one more chance to get it and yell hallelujah. God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. Hallelujah. That'll make a Baptist church get Pentecostal right there. I want us to say, we're going to sing this song. I'd like for our prayer team members to come forward. This is going to be our closing prayer, this song. If you believe it, 
It's not rituals in a church. It's not holy days. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be saved today. And if some of you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, some of you have worked so hard to be a good Christian. You need to rest. You need to let God bestow his righteousness upon you. You need to accept his righteousness because it's been satisfied. Why not you be satisfied?